Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians this morning, specifically chapter 3, and we'll be reading from verses 14 to 21. That's Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. As the numbers came in and it became clear that he had indeed won the race, millions all over the nation were filled with this exuberant hope, this excitement, and it was written all over their faces. Down their cheeks ran tears of, of, of joy. It, 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 throughout all the streets and all of the land were heard shouts of just this incredible excitement and enthusiasm. Something great has happened. I remember seeing a close-up shot of Oprah Winfrey crying. It was incredible. This was a day, a day of the beginning of a new era a turning point for all the American people as the young, athletic, bright candidate from Chicago would now very soon sit behind the most powerful desk in all of the world. And what was clear on the morning or the evening of November 4th, 2008, was that the hope of many Americans rested in this candidate, Barack Hussein Obama. The question is, did Americans get the hope that they were looking for, the hope that they were promised? And you know, maybe some people's expectations were met, but I think it's safe to say that there are a lot of people who are still out there looking for the hope that was promised. And they're asking, well, who's next? Maybe, maybe that person, or maybe that person will be the one that we're looking for. This is the way it always goes. It seems to be a rule that no matter how excited we get, how promising the person is, the place, the plan, the, the idea, we're inevitably just left disappointed. 
disappointed in political leaders, disappointed in (laughs) new diet plans, disappointed in new jobs, new cars, new technology. I hear there's several new iPhones coming out soon. We'll be disappointed in them. We always are. Disappointed in health care plans. They promise a lot, and then when you go to cash in, you're like, oh, this is not what I thought I signed up for. We're disappointed in new movies. How often does the hype get so built up, and then you, you, they tell you, you've got to see this thing, and then you see it, and you're like, eh, that wasn't that great. What's next? We're disappointed in our own abilities, aren't we? We're disappointed in our inability to keep those New Year's resolutions, to turn over that new leaf, to break that bad habit. And the cycle, it just goes on and on and on. And it's not surprising that many people, as they get on to later years in life, well, they just end up skeptical. They end up jaded. They end up with this glass half empty Eeyore type outlook on life. It's, it's, it's a Murphy's Law kind of life, right? Wherever something can go wrong, it will go wrong. Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever gets better. Where are you at? It's easy to get to that point, isn't it? At work, at home, maybe you found yourself feeling that way in your Christian life. You gave your life to Jesus thinking, this is going to be incredible. This is going to change everything. You were on top of the world. This sense of joy and excitement to share Jesus with everyone that you knew. God, God was going to use you to have an eternal impact through your church. It's, it was going to be amazing. But as time passes by and reality sets in, battling sin in your own life, well, that proves to be a far more difficult task than maybe you thought it was. Maybe leaders in your church, they once they were just these glimmering examples of Christ-likeness, and now that you've been around a little while, they're not so shiny anymore. <laughs> maybe attendance has dropped. Resources have become scarce. There's not the same energy. There's not the same enthusiasm that was once there among the people. And with society trending the way our society is, the demands that they're now making, well, you're beginning to become doubtful of whether or not church is even going to be around for much longer. If you're feeling the weight and exhaustion that comes with pressing on in the midst of opposition, well, don't worry. You are in good company. Opposition to the spread of the gospel, that was fierce in Paul's day. Listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, 
Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? If anyone had reason to despair, it's this guy. It's Paul. If anyone had reason to throw in the towel and say, this is too much, I'm done here, I'm just going to go sulk. It's Paul. And I'm sure that you and I, if we put our heads together, we could probably come up with a pretty long list of woes. But you know, I don't think it's going to hold a candle to what Paul just wrote. But even so, when I look at my list, it's difficult for me to not feel down in the dumps. And you would think that would be the same for Paul. You would think that would be his attitude, just a give up mentality. But instead we see him saying seemingly ludicrous things. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, he writes, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What, what a perspective to have. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is the deal, Paul? How on earth, of all people, do you maintain a posture of hope and enthusiasm, of of confident, joyful expectation for the future when you have been met time and time again with such hardships how do you do it how the answer is really very simple paul knows his god that's it he knows his god And as he wraps up this first half of this letter to the Ephesians, he hits verse 20 and then explodes all over the place. It's kind of like he's been blowing up a balloon in in chapters 1 through 3. And he's filling it as full as it can possibly get with just these incredible theological truths. And then, in his joy and excitement, it's stretched to the absolute max, and he just explodes in praise to God. This is incredible. Look at verse 21. He writes, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all all generations, forever and ever. Amen. 
That word amen, it means so be it or let it be so. People often use that word like we do sometimes today to respond in agreement to what someone else has said. It's kind of like saying you are exactly right or absolutely. It's an acknowledgement that truth has been spoken. And this outburst of praise, it's, it's the result of everything that Paul has been talking about. Everything that we have been studying over the last so many weeks that God has done, choosing a people before the foundation of the world, adopting them, redeeming them through the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiving them, making known to them the mystery of His will, that He has a plan, and He's going to bring all things in unity back together through Christ one day. And because of all that, And through all of that, God's glory is put on display. His his character qualities, they just shine brilliantly throughout the universe. You remember back in Ephesians 1 verse 12? It reads like this. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God's glory, that's the reason that Jesus came to save us. In chapter 2, Paul took us on a journey through our hopeless situation. He described to us how we're dead, how we are enslaved, how we're condemned. But then he points us to this incredible mercy of God that was shown through Christ as he came and saved us by his grace And he works to masterfully recreate us and change our lives in in such a way that they now please God rather than walk in rebellion against God. And he goes on in verse 11 to tell us how divided humanity was and then how Christ united us and made us into a holy nation, into a family, into this dwelling place where God himself resides. Why did he do all this? He did it for his glory. That in these people who have placed their trust in Christ, in, in the church, because that's what Christ really came to form, that everyone through ch- this church might see his glory. Church was created to give God's glo- God glory. John Piper writes this. This is, this is great. The reason God created the world and called the church into being is so that he would have a sufficiently diversified yet unified system of mirrors with which to reflect the glory of his many-sided wisdom to the universe. To him be glory in the church, Paul says in Ephesians 3.21. That's why we're here. We don't gather to earn points. We don't gather to hang out with friends and shoot the breeze, or even to be encouraged or be blessed, be entertained, though some of those things are fringe benefits that we receive when we gather together. It's true. We, the church, are here to give God glory like mirrors reflecting the sunlight. We're here to point each other and everyone else outside to how glorious God is. His brilliance, 
Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, speaking of the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How are we doing with that as a church? How are we doing in that area personally? As we walk around, as we go to school, as we're at work, as we're in our homes, as we're at the grocery store or the hardware store, as we interact with other people, do our lives show hope? The hope that we have in Christ? Do they show, do they just exude joy? Because of what Christ has done? Do the looks on our faces, do the words that come out of our mouths, the things that we do, do they proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light? That's why the church is here. To Him be glory in the church. The church exists to give God's, God glory. Paul also points out not only the church, but also Christ. He adds in verse 21, and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The church brings God, brings God glory, but also Christ as the obedient agent of God who really created the church in the first place. Piper goes on to write that if we imagine the church to be a hospital established by God, and where his son Jesus Christ is the only physician, God gets glory in the hospital by all the people getting well through the surgery of his son. Ephesians 3.21 then would be translated, glory to God in the church, his hospital, and in his son, the surgeon, Jesus Christ. And the glory that God gets from all of this, from, the, from his church, from Jesus Christ, well, that's not the, like the, the glory of an, an athlete. It's not, it's not fading. We have our heroes, don't we? And we prop them up and we celebrate them. And they're there for a time in the limelight. But how long does that last? See, God's glory isn't like that. Paul points out, forever and ever. Amen. This goes on and on and on. And here we begin zeroing in on the reason Paul can be so exuberant, so joy-filled, so courageously confident in the midst of all sorts of obstacles, downers that he faced. His gaze is on the one whose glory is unfading. God's glory doesn't go away. God's glory is, is majestic. It's brilliant. It outshines and outlasts all others. And his abilities have no limits. In the face of opposition in the world, were a thousand kings to rise up. And armies of countless sword-wielding soldiers come against Paul. It's not going to shake him. It's not going to shake him because he knows who his God is. And he knows his God is glorious beyond all compare and powerful beyond all compare and loving beyond all imagination. 
It's who he knows God to be. Look at verse 20. God is the one who is able. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, he writes. The knowledge that sends Paul into such an explosive moment of praise, it's the reality of God's power. Living under the shadow of the temple of Artemis, Paul's readers, they had lived each and every day with a sober understanding of the power, the supposed power of this God who dwelt on the temple in the temple on the hill. And their lives were subject to that God's or goddess's power. But now that they place their trust in this Jesus who Paul had been telling them about, would their new God be able to do what he promised to do for their lives? Could he come through? Would he be able to deliver? And Paul answers that question by saying, he's not only able to do what you need, he's able to do far more than you can even ask. You have a need, he can do far more than any request that you might throw at him. And not only that, he can do far more than anything that you can even imagine. That is the God that you now serve. This is the God of all creation. The one who holds limitless power. In fact, he's, he's completely sovereign. There is nothing that escapes his gaze. There is nothing that exists without his express consent. This is the God who's already put his power on display, right? Through Jesus Christ. As he went to the cross and then rose from the dead three days later. And Paul tells these people, that God who can do all these things, What incredible power. But get this. He's at work in you. He's at work in you. According to the power at work within us, he writes, if Paul were a pastor of this church, what would he say? I think he'd be telling all of us, you're wondering, you're wondering if Bethany Bible Fellowship has a hope has a future and you're uncertain if you'll be able to pull out of this trying this perceived trying time or if you'll ever see days of ministry like you saw in the days of old so many years ago when this thing was thriving and busting at the seams let me tell you this your god can do far more in your church than you have ever asked or imagined that is your god You know, it's not by accident that this reminder of God's great power is at this place in the book of Ephesians. Right here, smack dab in the middle. You'd think it would be just saved for the end. It's just this incredible high you end on. But no, he puts it right here in the middle, and I think there's a reason for that. I think it's because he's been telling us all the wonderful things that God has been doing in creating his church. But in the rest of this letter... As we look into next week and the weeks that follow, he's going to be urging the church to go for it, to move forward, to go forsake that old life that you once had 
And go live for Jesus. Go, go shine brilliantly for him. Paul knows that this is a really, really tall order. He knows it's something that Christians in and of themselves, they just can't do. He knows that the only way that we're ever going to live a life that is pleasing to God, well, it's by God's power. It's by his power. How have things been since you first placed your trust in Jesus? Total transformation, right? The moment you prayed that prayer or first trusted in him, the, the light came on and everything changed. It's like from, from then on out, you were just on the spiritual escalator going straight up to heaven, right? Nowhere but up. You were on, you were, you, you didn't, uh, you didn't make the same mistake twice. You never struggled with a temptation more than once. In fact, you came, you've come so far where you're at right now, you, you're, you're having trouble even remembering what temptation is. You never have to, to, to encourage your mind to think about what's true, honorable, and praiseworthy. It's just your mind is constantly going there. It's hard for you to be distracted by anything else. And in fact, in a few years' time, you're probably going to get there. You're probably going to be walking on water. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> That's not how it works, right? That's not the way it is if you're like me. You've had times when you look down at your life and you have wondered if you're ever going to be able to pull out of that spiritual slump. You've wondered... If you're ever going to be able to overcome that habitual sin or, or that doubt that you have, or maybe even despair and depression, you've wondered if you were ever really going to go anywhere in your relationship with God, if you were ever going to get to the point where your life actually looked like it was bringing glory to God. The message that Paul has for you and for me is God can do more far more, abundantly more than you could ever ask or think. The answer to our needs, it's not found in a grit-your-teeth kind of effort. It's not going to be found in self-help books, not in politicians and physicians or financial advisors. Those will all disappoint, and they do. But you and I can be filled with confidence that God is going to do great things because He loves us and He has the power to act on that love in ways we can't even imagine. Here's, here's the big idea. We should be filled with joyful expectation that God is going to do great things among us because His matchless love for the church it's backed by his limitless power. That's what Paul wants for these Ephesians when he prays his prayer in verses 14 to 19. Let's look back at that prayer right now, shall we? Look at verse 14. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth 
is named. For this reason. What's the reason, Paul? Well, to to get to that reason, we actually have to go back all the way to chapter 2. Yeah, I know there is 13 verses in chapter 3 right before this, but we actually have to go back. Remember when Pastor Jim preached a couple weeks ago, he said that verses 1 through 13 in chapter 3, that acted kind of like a parenthesis. It's, it's kind of like Paul was getting started and then he got sidetracked and said, oh, we need to talk about this. And for 13 verses he talked about that and then he moves on. Notice in verse 1, though, what Paul says. He starts off by saying what? For this reason. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he, he kind of moves off. He kind of rabbit trails here. He's about to tell us what he prays for the the Ephesian church. What he's going to pray as a result of all that God has done in chapter 2, about how God rescued this people for himself, how he made them into his church, members of the kingdom, of the family, the dwelling place of God, this new temple. He's about to tell us what all of this moved him to do, and he kind of gets sidetracked and he starts sharing about the mystery of the gospel paul loves the gospel he cherishes it and so he sees, he sees an opportunity here and all of a sudden well we, we got to talk about the gospel here but then in verse 14 he kind of gets back on track and he says again for this reason for this reason because of all that god has done in uniting the jews and gentiles into this church what does he do he humbly bows before his heavenly father he calls him his father he because he's now in the family just like all of us are in the family we have brothers and sisters and we have a father he bows before his father and he writes that he's the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named why does he mention this the act of name giving it uh it points to authority And Paul recognizes that God is the one with all the authority. This is important for his readers to understand because authority and power, they go hand in hand. He's the one who created and has the authority to name all of the things that have been made, including this family, this church that he has created. And we see the the connection between name-giving, creation, and power back in Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, verse 26, Isaiah writes, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. He who brings out their host by number, what does he do? Calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So Paul, he bows before this sovereign creator, because of Christ, he can now call Father, and he asks this in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And Paul recognizes that coming to faith in Jesus Christ, being adopted into the family of God and indwelt by his Holy Spirit doesn't mean, like so many of you have found out, that life is going to be easy, because it's not. 
members of Christ's church, they need divine strength. He continues, I pray that the Holy Spirit would, would strengthen you with the power in your inner being. And he writes in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And we've got to be careful here and make sure that we understand that he's not saying that Christ does not already dwell in the inner beings of Christians. These people that he was writing to, they were Christians. Christ is already in them. Remember in chapter 1, verse 13, he wrote, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's the indwelling of God's Spirit that comes and lives inside of Christians. So it's not as if these Christians need to somehow panic and think, well, I accepted Christ, but maybe somehow he, he, he came in, maybe marked me, and then, and then left, and now I need him again, and Paul's praying for him. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. What Paul is praying here is for an increased awareness an increased experience of Christ within the hearts of these Christians. You see, it's possible to trust in Christ and be positionally placed in the kingdom, be part of the family, and become a dwelling place for God, but to still have need for Christ to take more control inside of you, of various parts of your life. He needs to take control. He needs to transform. He needs to empower us to holiness. And in fact, it's, it's not only possible for that to happen, that, that's the reality, isn't it? It's what does happen for everyone who first placed their trust in Christ. At conversion, we all begin on this transformational journey towards Christ-likeness. There's a, a little book that is just awesome, written by Robert Boyd Munger. It's titled, My Heart, Christ's Home. Maybe some of you know it. In there, he gives us this picture of how Christ comes into a believer's life. It's as if he was entering a house. And when you first invite Christ into your life and he comes and dwells inside of you, yeah, he comes in, but it's like he comes into the living room. You say hello, you sit down for coffee, whatever. But then he starts getting nosy and he wants to go into the kitchen just to see what a mess is in there. And then you invite him in, you're kind of embarrassed. Like, I don't, Jesus, I don't, really don't want you to come in here. I really want you to see this, that the behind-the-scenes stuff, the messy stuff that it takes to get the coffee out to you. And he comes in, and what does he do? He doesn't start criticizing, he starts cleaning. And he transforms the kitchen. And then he moves on into the hallway, and into the bathrooms, and into the bedrooms, and into the garage. And he goes all through the house and does this work of cleaning out the junk and then redecorating and furnishing this thing so it just looks incredible. That's what we're in need of in our lives. We're in need of, of a fixer-upper, right? We're in need of a fixer-upper to come in and just change us. Paul is praying that Christ, the ultimate fixer-upper, might dwell in our hearts and be given free reign in them to do his transformational work. And as Christ dwells in our hearts, we're being rooted and we're being grounded in love. The greater influence that Christ has in our lives, the deeper that we're rooted, the deeper that we're grounded 
in his love for us. And just like a, a plant's roots, they, they grow down deep into the soil that they might draw nourishment. Just like a building, it's firmly established and fastened to its foundation. We need to be nourished, we need to be fortified in the love of Christ. And as we come to rely more and more on the matchless love of Christ, we're better equipped for everything that lies in our path. The storms, they threaten to blow us down, don't they? They just completely wipe us out, but they do nothing. They do nothing to us because our roots go down deep into Christ's love for us, giving us confidence to stand strong. The earthquakes that try to shake us, shake us apart, really, and cause us to come tumbling down, they miserably fail because we're bolted down into the secure foundation of Christ's love. That's where our trust is. And we know it's unshakable. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Directly connected to the love of Christ is the power of God as well. Paul goes on to write this, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And then he kind of stops there, leaving scholars to debate what is Paul talking about when he talks about the breadth and length and height we're not exactly sure because you'll notice Paul doesn't tell us here what the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth refer to. Apparently, he's assuming that his readers, the readers of this letter, are going to know exactly what that phrase is referring to. Well, what's it referring to? Is it referring to Christ's love? Is it referring to the magnitude of God's power? Is it referring to the details of God's mystery that he's unfolding to us? Or is it, is it something else? There are several different hypotheses. The most convincing to me is that the Ephesians, when they heard this phrase, they would have immediately recognized this. They would have immediately said, ah, I know what he's referring to. I know he's referring to supernatural power. Breadth, length, height, depth. Normally, when we're talking about the physical world, we're only talking about three dimensions, right? Three dimensions. But here Paul gives us four. It's as if he's pointing to something that exists outside of the realms of the natural world. One commentator, one of my former professors, notes this in his commentary. The only other place in ancient literature where the four-dimensional terms appear together is in a papyrus text where they refer to supernatural power. These four terms appear in succession on two occasions in a magical papyrus, in a context where the magician is seeking illumination into all aspects of the deity's power. In fact, the prefatory words represent an invocation to the deity to give your strength. Show me your might. Now, putting two, to get, two and two together, because we know that Ephesus was an epicenter. Epicenter in the ancient world for the ma practice of magic. 
There were all kinds of magic books. People had little trinkets around their nets, little amulets to try and somehow use to, to gain access to the deity's power. Because we know that, I think it's very likely that when Paul mentions these four things that the people go, oh, yep, that was just in like in that magic book we've been reading. We've been reciting this over and over again. We're trying to get the deity's power. I think they know exactly what he's talking about. But to the Ephesian Christians, they would have known something more. They would have known that Paul's not just talking about any power here. Paul is now saying, yeah, you were once calling on the power of Artemis or some obscure deity out there. You know where you need to call on for power? It's where the real power lies. That's what I'm praying for you. That you will know the depth, the width, the length, the breadth. I want you to know the real power the power of the God who saved you. Rooted and grounded in God's love, given the strength to comprehend the magnitude of God's incomparably great power. That's what I think Paul is praying for the church right here. He's on his knees before his heavenly Father, praying that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. As God's, God's power it goes beyond anything that is known in the natural world, so Christ's love surpasses knowledge. He said, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. <laughs> That's kind of a funny thing to say. You can never know Christ's love because it just, it's, it's incredible. It goes beyond. It goes on and on and on. There's so many different facets and aspects of it to know. You'll never fully know it, but I want you to know it. I want you to know it more fully. And they're going to need it because of the challenges that face the church, the challenges that you and I face each and every day, they threaten us, don't they? They threaten to rob us of our joy, tempt us to look to sources other than God for hope. They lead us to despair. But remember, there's one who can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think. And he's the one that we have been made to bring glory. The question is, why should we be filled with confidence that God is going to do great things among us? Why should we expect that he's going to use our church to spread, to continue to spread the message of the gospel in our community and through our missionaries around the world? Why should you have hope that God is going to give you victory over sin and lead you to a life that brings God honor and glory, well, we should be filled with joyful expectation that God is going to do great things among us because his matchless love for the church, that's backed by his limitless power. As we continue to pray for, for each other, and I know that many of you are praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ but as we continue in the days ahead, let's be praying like Paul prayed for the church. That our lives might 
be filled more fully with Christ as we come to know his power and his love. And may each challenge that comes our way be met with joyful expectation for how God might do far, far more than we can even imagine. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this letter to the Ephesians and how encouraging it is to our souls. Lord, the things, the opposition, the challenges that we face on a daily basis, Lord, they are so real. They hear all the time of people who are suffering with illness. They find out a diagnosis from a doctor that they do not like, or they've got a surgery coming up, Lord, or they've, got, they've lost a loved one, or they've got a child that is going in a different direction that they had hoped. There's people who need jobs. There's people, Lord, whose finances are, are really tight, and they're not sure how they're going to make it next month. And all of these, Lord, we know are so small compared to the resources that you have at your fingertips. And we call on you, Lord, and we pray for each other that we might, our strength, Lord, might be found in you. And that as we look to the love of Christ that has already been shown so greatly in how he went to the cross for our sins, Lord, may we anchor ourselves to that love. May we remind ourselves of it daily that we might stand strong and have confidence, even joy, for how you are going to work in the days ahead. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for each other that we have to lean on and look to for encouragement. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.